the New Zealand Business Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, your strategic and proactive IT partner. Well, greetings and welcome along to this episode of the New Zealand Business Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. With me, I have Joe Bennett, also uh, co-hosting this episode. And we have Josh Daniel, who is from Snowball Effect. Welcome along to both of you. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Hello. All right. Well, let's jump in. Um, Josh, tell us about Snowball Effect. I'm, I'm curious to know how you started and what the Snowball Effect is all about. Sure. Snowball Effect is an online marketplace where the public can come along and discover and invest into early stage growth businesses. So we're a marketplace that matches growth companies looking for funding and people who want to invest into private equity. So private growth companies um, that are looking to raise funds and employ people, build product, export, that sort of thing. So we've been operating for 22 months now. We launched off the back of a law change in 2014. um, And that law change enables us to make offers to the public. Um, Before this law change, it was really restricted in the ways that offers of shares can be made. But this law change paved the way for companies to access the whole of the capital market, the public, um, as long as they make their offer through a licensed equity crowdfunding platform. And that's you. That's us. And I guess it might be worthwhile just uh, pointing out how equity crowdfunding differs from rewards, donation and debt crowdfunding. So equity crowdfunding is where a whole bunch of people contribute funds towards a company and in return they get shares. So you're hoping that that company increases in value, therefore your shares increase in value. Donation crowdfunding is where a whole lot of people contribute funds towards a project and in return they're hoping to see that project come to fruition. It may be an altruistic motivation. Um, You may get some sort of reward in return, but it's a non-financial reward, so it's not something like shares. And debt crowdfunding often gets called peer-to-peer lending, um, but basically it's a whole lot of people contributing funds towards a loan, and in return they're getting interest payments and hopefully the principal back when that loan matures. So those are how we split up the three main types of crowdfunding. We just focus on equity crowdfunding, so we're only working with growth companies that are looking to raise funds by offering shares. And you've had some interesting um, campaigns that you've been involved in sort of initially. There was, uh, there was a film in there, I think was one of the first ones that I, I looked at. What were some of those, those first examples of where you set up campaigns? Sure. So we've been operating for 22 months. The first uh, offer launched in New Zealand in August 2014. Um, over that time, but over $25 million has been raised, and I can talk more about the bit over $18 million that has been raised through Snowball, which is uh, part of the market. So the first one was actually a craft brewery called Renaissance Brewing, and that had been around for nearly 10 years, been profitable the last few, and we felt that that was a good place to start because it's not one of those businesses that's going to run out of cash and die in the next year. Um, they were a more stable business. They had some clear growth objectives, they had some very clear reasons for how they were going to use those funds. Um, and it was an interesting story for people to be involved with. The second one was the film. And that was a film called Mahana, which was actually released recently. Um, so this was a really interesting one because we, we didn't expect to be playing a part in film financing when we were doing our market validation around what the market would be for equity crowdfunding. But this one came along and it fitted the bill. They had quite a lot of private equity investment already lined up 
and they basically just needed the last 500k um, to max out that 10 mil budget that they had for that film. Um, so everything lined up on that one too. And since then, there's been a range of different businesses. It's been a range of different stages. So some companies at the very early stage um, and some companies like Squirrel most, uh, more recently where um, they were much further down the track and they want to do a listing next year. So they've been all different stages and all different types of industries. So we mentioned you know, craft brewing and film. Um, there's been clean tech, there's been pharmaceuticals, there's been all sorts. And really what we are looking for is a judgment around whether we think there's going to be sufficient invested demand for a particular offer. So our view is that it's not worthwhile the company putting a whole lot of time and effort into capital raising if it's unlikely to be successful. So we work with the company in trying to understand what sort of investors are going to be interested in this. Do we have them in our audience? How else can we reach them? Is the proposition um, going to sell itself when we put it in front of these people? So we're pretty agnostic to the stage of company and the type of industry we're just trying to pick whether this proposition is going to attract sufficient invested demand what helps people succeed with a crowdfunding campaign i mean the publicity side of it seems to be quite a challenge regardless of how good the company is yeah i think it's, it's absolutely right and often overlooked i think the first thing is that the business needs to be suitable for this type of investment and not every business is, is suitable for equity investments. A slow-growth business, um, a, you know, a stable SME, those kinds of businesses just aren't suitable for equity funding because there's no alignment between what investors want to get out of it and what the company's aspirations are. So that filters out a hell of a lot of companies. Um, so the first thing is, you know, is the business suited to equity funding? Second part is around um, preparation, and this is where a lot of the time goes. So the company needs to sell itself based on the information that's online. And this is very different from pitching in front of people. You know, if you're pitching in front of people, I mean, so much of business success at the early stage is dependent on the people. And if you're pitching in front of investors, they get a chance to see your passion and your resilience and your competence. But if you're selling them online, you've got to let the information, the written information and the video do that selling for you. And that's harder for online investors. They aren't um, sitting there in front of you getting amped up about what you're talking about. So there's a lot of work that goes into crafting the story, uh, being really clear around what the strategy is, how much you're raising, how the funds are going to be used, looking at the financial forecast and how that all feeds in together. So you've got to paint that picture, make it attractive for investors, but you've always got to be careful about not including anything that's false or misleading or unsubstantiated because then there's real risk for the people involved with making the offer. So it's trying to walk that balancing act between making an offer that is attractive and that's part of you know how the offer is structured and um, what the growth um, opportunity is for the company, but also making sure that it's done very carefully and with a whole lot of information to back up the statements that are made as part of that offer. So that's the preparation phase. Um, another key part is you know, how the online process actually works, you know, the administration layer of conversing that interest and making it really simple for investors to find and to actually invest. And then another key part is distribution. So now you've got this great offer, you want to put it in front of people, how are you going to do that? Um, some of the marketplaces obviously we have different sizes of audience, so we've just passed over 10,000 um, investors in our audience that we reach by email. Um, so that's part of the distribution, but you may want to focus on people within the industry that are interested in investing. You may want to go to your customer base or user base because they're natural 
um, supporters of your business anyway. You may want to bring them closer into the fold. Um, so that distribution is another key element. It sounds like brand new companies may not be the best fit for equity crowdfunding. Like if you're started and you're doing okay and you want to grow, that sounds to me like a, a much better fit. Is that so? Totally agree with that. So coming back to that point about this is online investing, it's so much harder for you sitting there in your armchair to get confidence in a proposition just based on information you're reading online. And if you're earlier stage and you don't have sales yet, then it's really hard to get confidence in the financial projections that are being put in front of you. It's much easier if you can see sales because then you can use that as a proxy for product market fit and for the executive's team team's ability to execute on the plan so you can start using that to get confidence in okay this is what they've done so far I'm looking at these projections which are always shaped as like some sort of hockey stick and here are how they're going to use the funds and I can sort of weave that into the story and see how those projections sort of make sense to me and I can start to get more confidence in it so we think that early stage businesses can suit equity crowdfunding but they need other reference points around them to give investors that confidence So as an example, if it's a very early stage business, we really like to see credible non-executive directors on the board. So these are people that are well respected in the industry um, and, you know, they're putting their time into this business and possibly their own money as well. And that's a good reference point for investors that thinking, well, you know, I've got no way of validating the team really because I'm doing this online. I want to look for things that give me confidence that credible people have spent time with these people and they think they're credible and they understand the product and the state it's in, they understand the market opportunity and um, they're putting their time into this company. Another really important reference point can be a credible lead investor. So same sort of person, someone that really knows the industry, they really understand the technology that the business is building um, and they're putting up hurt money. So they've done some serious due diligence Um, they're putting their money where where their mouth is and they've negotiated terms that they believe are fair and essentially they're using um, equity crowdfunding or online capital raising to top up their investment and this is very reflective of what what goes on with early stage investment you know everyone wants to diversify their portfolio so no one wants to put all the eggs in one basket so it's very common for deals to be syndicated around in the angel space for example around 80% of the deals are syndicated between different angel groups Um, So it's very common for a high-risk early-stage venture to secure a lead investor and then sort of shop it round once terms are locked down and say, who wants to come in on the back of this? So I totally agree with your point. It is easier for a growth company um, to sell its story because they can say, look what we've done so far. This is where we're going. You can see that we've been able to do what we've said we've been able to do up to this point. Another interesting thing I thought was um, the MAD group. I've always wondered what happens when you get people to stump up with some of the money but not all of it. And I understand that they went for 750000 and people said, we'll give you 500000 But then they did go on to do what they wanted to do. How did that happen? Yeah, so at the time, Mad Group was, I think, the fifth offer in New Zealand. And Mad Group is made up of two businesses. So they've got uh, Mad Mix, Mexican chain, and Habitual Fix. Um, sort of healthy fast food and yeah they went for a target of 750k which at the time was the highest target that anyone had gone for and they fell a bit short of that but still got a good response so they decided to contact all those investors that expressed interest 
and invite them to participate in a private offer where the target was 500k and to make up the shortfall in funding that they needed to execute on their plan they went back to their bank and said um, look this is where we've gone into in terms of equity funding would you be happy to extend the facility another 250k Um, and that had a relatively minor impact on the financials because obviously there's a bit longer repayment um, term and higher interest costs um, so that went into the updated financials. The offer went back out to investors and most people came back in that had committed previously and some people actually upped their investment. Um, so yeah, they started doing a, what we call a, a public offer um, and then once that was unsuccessful in raising the 750k target, they opened a private offer, which is what we call an offer that isn't displayed on our offers page and the company will choose to send that URL to that offer page to whatever audience that they want. Um, and this is pretty common, you know, this is something that Squirrel did recently. So Squirrel broke the record for the largest amount raised recently. They raised a bit over $3.4 million. And they started by going to their customer base. They wanted to give their early adopters the first opportunity to invest. So companies will have different reasons like that for going to a private offer. And maybe the company just doesn't want the risk of a publicly failed offer. Um, and maybe that the company only wants a select group of people to invest um, sometimes a company will come to us and say, look, we only want investors that are putting in over 50K, so can we carve off some of your audience and just send it out to those that have invested 50K previously? Um, so there's different ways to cut it like that. And yeah, so we're seeing more flexibility in those capital raising options and company pick um, the different options for different use cases. Now, looking at the types of investors that you get, can you run us through some examples? Because I think with um, equity crowdfunding being quite a new space and it's opening up opportunities for individuals to invest in ways that they haven't ever been able to do in the past, you know, I think we probably see a different pattern of investment than, than we've traditionally seen. You know, People that are able to take a slice of a business much earlier than they would have in the past. Traditionally, these sorts of people maybe would be buying shares on the stock market and so on. So, you know, those businesses are further down the track. They're a lot bigger in scale. Now they've got these new opportunities. Can you share some examples of, of some of the types of investors you've seen and the types of investments? Well, um, I think of myself, I've, you know, definitely when, you know, you launched with some of your early offers, I thought, oh, this is interesting. Um, look, I don't have a lot of cash to invest, but I want to understand how this works. So I'm going to put a little bit of money in uh, just to be able to watch and, and see the experience. And I imagine there are some other people like that too, you know, who might just put a thousand or two thousand dollars in as a minute you know your minimum levels um with a bit of curiosity some of those people are obviously going to invest a lot more longer term then i imagine you've got other people that are uh, that are maybe going for you know for some more sizable uh investments right from the get-go yep we've seen quite a few people that uh have done what you did paul so they might want to try out the process or dip their toes in the water of private equity um, and we've seen the average investment which started around 4.5K, rise to more like 8.5K over the last six months. Um, yeah, a few general stats. I mean, in terms of age, the average age is 45. About 75% of investors are male, um, which is pretty reflective of what you see in the angel groups and private equity investors generally. Um, in terms of the size of investment, we've seen anywhere from whatever the minimum investment level was, which is set by each company, up to couple of people that have invested 500k 
Um, in terms of age, it's been really interesting. We thought that some of the older age ranges might be hesitant to invest because this whole market is very new, it's online, it's not the way that they're accustomed to investing. But it's actually, we've had a good pickup right across the age ranges. So we have a cutoff of, you've got to be 18 plus. And when we graph it out per five years, it's actually a lot flatter than we expected. And we've tried to make the process as simple as can be. But there still is, you know, paperless direct debit is the payment process that we use. So people have to put in their bank account details. Um, they've got to plug in their driver license or passport details to meet anti-money laundering obligations. There are a few things that they've got to do. They electronically sign documents. A few things that they will be doing that they won't necessarily have done before. And I think we're just lucky in terms of timing here. You know, it's not that long ago that people were scared of buying flights online or doing internet banking, but that wave has kind of come through and we've ridden on the back of it. Um, but to dip down into the investor profiles a little bit more, there are four key ones that rise to the surface. The first is uh, the professional, so someone that's got disposable income but time poor and they just want an easy channel to get some access to private equity. Um, the second is someone that's a bit older. They've often come off the back of a successful career, often been in the SME space. So they may have been a business owner or worked in the SME space somehow and they have some appetite for the risk of a growth business. Um, and often there's a bit of an altruistic vein running through them. So they want to remain involved with that space and they want to put um, some money in to help people who, whose journey that they identify with. The third would be people that treat their investing professionally or semi-professionally and they've got a, a broad portfolio and they want to round it out with private equity and that's been you know, a hard asset class to get consistent deal flow to. Um, from and so here they use us as a channel to get consistent deal flow of a quality of information that they are happy with and can make a call pretty quickly of whether they're in or out and the fourth profile that rises to the surface is people within the company's own audience and that changes a lot depending on what the offer is so craft beer very different audience than um, a pharmaceutical company so for example the last public offer we did um, was a company called Verify and they, have to, they use laser technology to verify the drug coming down an IV line um, so they identify whether it's the correct drug and correct dosage uh, to prevent medication error and this company is at a very early stage I mean they've done a lot of tests which show promising results but these funds are being used to build the commercial prototype which will go into ADHB hospitals um, for a trial then off the back of that they hope to secure a an international distributor and kick forward from there but this is early stage stuff and high risk and so the people that are attracted to something like that will be very different from those that are attracted to the film and the craft brewery and so on so that mix of people that come in is varied um, what we've seen over time is that the proportion of people who invest who were existing snowball members before the office started has risen over time and it's consistently over 50% now and then the remainder of that is coming from the company's own audience it might be their networks their customers their users it might be from the PR that's generated around the office so people just coming in that are hearing about it through traditional media um, or there might be some specific marketing that's arranged for that offer because we know hey these type of people are going to be interested in it so let's target them so those are the four key profiles that we've seen come to the surface 
Um, but what we've seen over time is exactly where you started with the question, Paul. A lot of people were sort of dipping their toes in at the start. The people that are sticking are those that are more serious generally about exposure to private equity. And we see them sort of getting confidence in the process and the deal flow and investing larger amounts. That's great. Yeah, I think um, I think it's it's pretty interesting in terms of what the potential is as well in terms of uh, changing habits for New Zealanders in terms of how they invest money. And we look at the economy at the moment. We're putting uh, money in the bank doesn't give a doesn't give a great return and maybe quite a, a, a stable and a safe investment. But I you know, I think those those lower uh, interest rate returns will have people uh, very interested in what their other opportunities are. Then, of course, we've got the property market, particularly in, in Auckland, uh, where it's very tempting for people just to leave, you know, a, a good chunk of their uh, their investments in, in property. Um, and I admit I've um, I've probably fallen into into that a little bit myself, sort of wondering, you know, hey, when's this rise gonna going to uh, uh, s- s- slow down and, and and stop and so on. Um, but in terms of actually really helping our our economy, um, you know, how important do you think uh, you know crowdfunding is in in terms of growing New Zealand and to as a as a as an economy that's you know exporting intellectual property, you know fostering new businesses that are that are going to really be able to help us um, you know long term as a nation. You've hit on the head of exactly why we're doing it, which is that. The capital markets just don't work efficiently for growth companies. And if they take their eye off the ball for six or nine months trying to raise capital, which is this painful, expensive, slow process, they should be spending that time on selling and growing. Um, So we're really motivated by making the capital markets work efficiently so that companies can raise capital when they need it and get back into doing what they do. We're also passionate on the other side of that market where you know, investors just haven't had the opportunity to support these kind of businesses before. And the financial literacy in New Zealand is lower than it should be. Um, but people only learn about this stuff through exposure. No one is born knowing about capital raising or knowing about investing. You only learn about it through exposure. So we love having public offers up there in addition to private offers so that people can actually have a look. They can participate in the Q&A or they can just read through and see what people are saying. If they feel comfortable and want to, they can invest $1,000 or a small amount. They can easily diversify 10 grand if they want to. So it's a much simpler way to get exposure and start learning about this type of investment. So that's what really drives us is that we want to make it much easier for growth companies to raise funds, so cheaper and faster. And we want to give people the ability to support these businesses. So we want to make that market. And if we do our job well, that is exactly the impact that we want to make. It may seem like an obvious question, but I'm sure some people will be asking it. Why not just go to the bank? Sure. Yeah, so, I mean, for an early stage company, they have a number of things that they can look at if capital is a constraint for their business. And we really encourage companies to look at that whole range of options. And some of them are not that obvious. I mean, you could put in your own funds, obviously, until they run out. You may have grants available to you if you've got some novel R&D. Um, There may be partnership opportunities, particularly sort of vertical partnerships, so with customers or suppliers. So if equipment is what you really need the money for, it may be someone within the supply chain that you can partner with to remove that capital constraint. Um, So there's some sort of non-equity, non-debt options like that that we really encourage companies to think about. If they're not an option, then companies are looking at debt and equity. With debt, I mean, if you don't have tangible assets like property, 
or you don't have strong, stable cash flows, it's very hard for commercial lenders like banks to lend to you. Um, if they are prepared to lend, then the interest rate will be very high. So for a lot of businesses, um, they either don't have debt an option or it's too expensive or they need to put their personal assets like their house at risk with their business assets. And you know they've already left their cosy job, joined this, um, you know, starting the startup. They don't want to put everything else in their personal life at risk with the business. So for a lot of companies, debt just isn't really an option. So they're looking at the equity options. Which brings us back to the question of risk again. Um, how do you help ensure that investors aren't exposed to too much risk because there's been um, questions raised. I know it's more around the startups about ambitious forecasting and inadequate due diligence. What does Snowball Effect do to manage that risk? I know you can't get rid of it completely, but it is an issue. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the starting point is that we don't try and move away from risk. It's it's generally going to be riskier to invest in a private company than a public company. And it's generally going to be riskier to invest in an early stage company than a later stage company. But risk goes hand in hand with reward as long as the value or the price that you're getting in at is set appropriately. So we don't shy away from risk, but you're absolutely right. Those risks need to be um, exposed so that people can understand the risk profile and reward profile of investment properly. And there should be appropriately, appropriate protections around that. So we sort of think of um, general investor protections in three buckets. So you have um, company law, so that every um, offeror is a company and there's rules around um, how the directors must act and how shareholders need to be treated and so on. Um, then you have securities law, which governs the way that an offer of financial products like shares is made. So the key one there is that information can't be false, misleading or unsubstantiated. So um, you know the directors can be on the line if they are involved with those kind of statements too. Um, and then we have contractual law. And so often there will be a shareholder agreement as part of the offer. Um, and that will often contain... Uh, drag and tag rights or preemptive rights and those sort of other protections that sometimes investors will want to see in an early stage investment. So then I guess the other part of your question was around what does snowball effect do? Um, it's, a, it's a really uh, hard one for us to answer in a way because we don't ever want to give the sense that we do due diligence on behalf of investors or that we endorse a deal. We certainly don't give investment or financial advice. Um, so all that we say about what we do is written on our website and it's a very limited list. So we do very limited background checks on the company and the key people. Um, we do police checks on the key people. Um, we ensure that certain disclosure information is actually included in the offer. Um, but the key one that allows us to think a bit harder is that we have the option to not put something into the marketplace if we don't think it's going to be successful. I gather you've turned down hundreds of people who've come to you. Yeah, so I mean, it's slightly less than 2% in terms of who have expressed interest that have gone into the marketplace. But to give that a bit of context, I mean, there are a lot of people with a half-baked idea that would come to us in the early days. And equity crowdfunding was new and we expected that and we see that as um, part of our job to do in the market to spread awareness about what's going to work and what isn't. Um, but just to try and finish off your question, you know, what does Snowball Effect look for when we're trying to figure out if, um, if there's going to be sufficient investor demand for a particular offer? 
one of the key things that we look for, coming back to a point I made earlier, is who's on the board. Because when we're looking at offer information before it you know, goes into the marketplace, we're trying to get confidence in what the company is saying as well. And if we know that there are credible people on the board that are putting their name behind those statements in that offer document, it gives us confidence that we can believe these forecasts. We can believe what they're saying about how good their product is. We can believe what they're saying about their IP protection, all that kind of stuff. So that's one of the key things. And the second key one is around investor validation. It's, it's quite rare for us to approve an offer into the marketplace if there's no form of investor validation. And by that just means someone who is a credible investor that has helped to validate the deal by investing a significant amount. And they've typically helped to negotiate terms that they believe are fair. So coming back to the start of the response, you know, we don't shy away from a, from a very risky proposition but it needs to be balanced out by size of price, which is appropriate for that risk profile. And then the price needs to be right. The price is the slider that makes that risk-reward profile attractive or not. And so we look for other ways of validating the proposition. And part of that is who's on the board. Are there quality people there involved with the information? Because obviously valuation comes off the back of the forecasts. So we want to know who's been involved with constructing them. Um, and then we want to understand, is there any validation of this offer by investors already? And that can help get us confidence that we think will translate to confidence when it's actually out there in the marketplace. That's good. Now, looking at your background, I'm sort of curious, how did you get to this point um, of co-founding Snowball Effect? Uh, as Claudia Bannon would put it, a squiggly line, I suppose. Um, I am actually a farm boy from the Wairarapa and um, made my way down to uni in the South Island and was overseas for a little while. Um, I'd interned at a law firm called Balgali before that and I was actually came back from overseas and was doing some work for my parents that were overloaded um, and there's one particular project that I could help out with and that hadn't quite finished but I couldn't really leave New Zealand until it was done. Um, so I ended up saying, hey, why don't I do a bit of law for a while? I'd enjoyed my stint there as a summer clerk. So I became a lawyer for a couple of years. Um, and after a couple of years, really enjoyed my time there, but was just becoming too excited about other opportunities. And the way I could see myself doing those other opportunities was to start a freelance business and essentially sell myself as a... Uh, contract worker slash business consultant and shoulder tap those companies or industries that I'd always wanted to work in for a stint and say hey do you need an extra pair of hands have you got an employee on leave a big backlog of work in an area Um, are there specific projects that I can come and do to give you the value that you need to see day to day but while I'm in there I'll sap up as much knowledge as I can and try and help in other ways too and I had some travel and some study that I wanted to tie in with that so anyway I was doing this um, this contract work and a friend of mine at a law firm said hey I think you should meet our clients they're looking at equity crowdfunding they've started doing a bit of market validation work they're looking for someone to push a few things forward that might be well suited and she didn't actually know that while I was at uh, Balgali I'd been really interested in capital raising and we used to work on big offers of shares or debt products and just amazed at some of the inefficiency in the process and that's at the big end of town and it gets more inefficient when you're down the small end of town Um, and I'd been pretty um, interested in that space for a few years so that was sort of a chance introduction 
Um, and I now met the, the, my three co-founders that had already started working on this um, and really liked the guys and more than anything, I liked how they wanted to do it because I think what we do could be done very badly and the market would be in a very different shape um, if it was done badly. So I liked that the way they were approaching it. We talked a bit about our motivations earlier and um, we all shared those motivations and I just got really excited by it and jumped in full-time rather than doing the contract work. That's great. Now, with all these things that you've been doing and especially your time um, at Snowball Effect, it sounds like you probably juggled a, a fair lot of work. Joe was mentioning uh, earlier this morning how she got a message from you about midnight last night. You work pretty hard. I would like to think maybe you've got some uh, some lessons that you could uh, you could share that the audience might be uh, interested in, sort of you know tips that you've picked up along the way in terms of how to be effective, you know how to get results, how not to be working a you know a, a day that's uh, that's too long every day. Um, <laughs> anything you can share there with us? Yeah, I I mean I am probably guilty of working too long hours. I'm not sure. Um, if that's the right fit for everyone, particularly if you've got families and so on. I'm lucky I, I don't at the moment, so it's easier for me to do that. Um, in terms of working effectively, I've definitely learned a lot about that. From working as a lawyer, you know, you're billing based on time and you've got this mindset of productivity equals time on the clock. And it took me a while to shake that mindset. Um, but there's a few things that I do to try and make sure I'm being effective and one of them is to write everything I want to do down so I use Trello for this um, an online tool um, every night before I go home I prioritise that list for the next day so you know what you're doing when you come in the next day um, and then I use a few different processes for sort of looking out further than one day ahead um, another key thing for me is that I know that if I want to get some of the big stuff done I need peace and quiet early in the morning or late at night basically especially working in a, in a shared space um, yeah so I mean I guess sorry one other thing that's that's fed into that is really understanding the key drivers of success for the business and some people will call this the North Star um, I think getting it down to one single um, trackable metric is the best way to do this because if you've got multiple metrics it kind of scatters your thinking so when you're looking at this long laundry list of tasks that you want to do and everyone's going to have in a startup a list longer than they can ever do and it just grows the whole time and it weighs you down but if you wash every one of those tasks against one metric that you know is going to drive success in your business it becomes much easier to prioritize that list and then you can quickly say yep this one's moving up the list this one's going down and I'm going to cut it there so if I want to try and have some time you know, outside of work and make sure I get home by some respectable time, I'm going to cut it there and the rest of that list can be prioritized at a later date. So I think that's a really important um, thing for early stage businesses that need to be laser focused to do is understand what that key metric is that's going to drive their success and make sure what they're working on matters. I think one of the guys that's <coughs> influenced my thinking about this is Sam Altman from Y Combinator and um, he's written about the, the post-YC slump. So Y Combinator is probably the world's most famous accelerator. So companies like Airbnb and Dropbox have come through them. Um, and what they notice is that when companies leave that acceleration process, they often go through a slump in their growth. And because 
YC takes an equity stake in all these businesses. They obviously try and find out what this is so they can try and fix it. And what they find is that companies just stop focusing on the right things. And so without someone over them going, why are you, why are you spending this week doing that? Shouldn't you be out there doing this, which is going to drive that key metric? So they start um, you know, doing PR, which is more for personal benefit rather than company benefit, or they start trying to figure out which um, law firm they should be working with and burning a whole lot of time on things like that. But um, you know, if, if you're really focused on the right stuff, um, then you're going to be more effective in your use of time. But it's so easy to drift. I find that I, I need to reread that article of Sam Altman's every few months to try and shake you know, my thinking, okay, what am I actually spending my time on? Is the key metric that I'm running off the correct one still? Um, and have I prioritized my tasks correctly? That's great. Joe, did you have any other questions? Oh, I always ask this question, but I think you've kind of answered it in a way. But is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is important? Right. I guess one thing that we haven't uh, really covered is how the space we're in has evolved. Mm -hmm. So we've been going for 22 months and we started with, you know, what we've been talking about is equity crowdfunding, which is really a way for companies to offer shares to the public without needing a product disclosure statement or a prospectus. So it's a very cheap way to go to the whole of the capital markets. And that was the starting point. But the offering has pretty quickly evolved into a range of online capital raising options. And we think of ourselves as an online, online capital raising marketplace rather than an equity crowdfunder per se. So public offers are still very much part of what we do, but we've got private offers. We have a very important new piece, which we call wholesale investor offers. And to explain that in a little bit of detail, the whole of um, New Zealand is split into a dichotomy of wholesale investors or retail investors. Wholesale investors are people that have very high income or high net wealth or they are an investment business, these sort of criteria. And if you meet one of those, you're deemed to be a wholesale investor. Less than 2% of New Zealanders fall into that wholesale investor category. But before um, equity crowdfunding came along, this was the only group that you could offer shares to without a product disclosure statement. So the the whole of the capital markets, you just had this tip of the iceberg, which was wholesale investors, and that was the only part that was mobilized. Um, so wholesale investor offers are important to us because they give us more flexibility. So for example, if you're offering a convertible note rather than shares, that doesn't work with the equity crowdfunding regulation. So that offer must be made to wholesale investors. If you want to raise more than the $2 million limit per company per 12 months, that limit applies to retail investors. So Squirrel raised a bit over $3.4 million in April, and that was because they um, took less than $2 million from retail investors and the balance from wholesale investors. At the moment, we're facilitating the private sale of, of options in a well-known um, Kiwi tech company that went overseas. That offer can only be made to wholesale investors. So that part of the offering gives us a hell of a lot more flexibility in terms of the deals that we can facilitate. And then the fourth part of the, the offering is around bespoke capital raising assistance. And by that I just mean company comes to us, um, they want, call it a million dollars, but what they want alongside the cash is someone that can really open up market access in their target market or someone that's going to play an active role in governance or someone that's bringing a whole lot of domain expertise to the table. And so we're always trying to figure out with a company, you know, that's good, you want the cash, what else alongside the cash is going to add value to your business? And for some companies, that will be exposure. That's why they want to do a public offer. They want to get customer acquisition out of it and so on. They might want to line up a listing and therefore they want 
300 shareholders because then they can just do a compliance listing. They can jump on um, one of the exchanges cheaper. So there are different motivations around, around the cash and that bespoke capital raising assistance allows us to match up companies with select people in our audience that we think may have appetite for it and we'll bring the other stuff alongside the cash. So that's the, that's the core offering now, public offers, private offers, wholesale investor offers and bespoke capital raising assistance. In terms of um, where it's going, I think you'll see um, you know, online capital raising marketplaces expand up the food chain a bit. Mm. So Squirrel was a sign of that, whereas a much larger, larger raise with a more established company than we've seen before. But you know, we've had discussions with a couple of companies that are small cap listed companies. For them, it's really hard to raise funds too, because what is the distribution channel to investors for them? I mean, if you look at the brokers who typically provide that distribution infrastructure, um, they're just not interested in a very small deal. And that just doesn't make sense to them in terms of the economics. So someone needs to fill that gap, and we think we can do that. So we expect to be involved um, in either IPOs, so carving off an allocation of an IPO, um, or small cap, um, small, small capital raises for small cap listed companies. So that's something I think we'll see in the market before too long. I think it's great that you're evolving in this way. The only concern that comes to mind is that you could get too big end of town and the sort of democratic aspect of crowdfunding, which was there right at the beginning and that the government wanted because they were back, they backed it. You could lose sight of that, do you feel? It's certainly one thing that we are concerned about because we want to keep um, consistent deal flow coming through to the public so that they can get exposure into these companies as everyone wants but we can't manufacture those deals and in a small market like New Zealand to make our economics work we really need to be um, facilitating a broad range of deals and so if we were just focusing on early stage high growth companies that are raising less than two million dollars it would be very hard for us to be a business that survives and thrives if we can facilitate a broader range of deals, then we can do that much more easily. So we certainly want to stay true to where we started and make sure that we get consistent deal flow coming through to the public that want exposure to early stage growth companies. But in order to make us sustainable, we know that we need to service a greater um, proportion of the market than that. Sounds like you have to stick with your altruistic side at the same time as being a viable business yourself. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's great. Um, it's been a great discussion. I know there's a whole lot more things that I would love to, love to ask you, um, but I don't want to stretch this out too long. Um, but w- w- I guess one I want to reference back to um, is we had uh, Lance Wiggs on one of our earlier episodes talking about Punakaiki Fund, and he was going out um, to you know to to get funding for that initially. Um, if I remember correctly, was that an IPO? I'm just trying. I, you know, I think he was going down that track, and then um, then he went down the crowdfunding uh, track with 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 Snowball Effect. And I, I just thought that would be interesting to close the the loop on that story. Is that something that you could just share a few details about? Yeah, absolutely. So Punakaki Fund went out in 2013, and they tried to raise a larger fund, um, and didn't raise everything that they wanted to. So they rejigged things a little. Um, changed up what their cost structure was going to be, changed up their fees, and raised a smaller chunk of money and then got started. So by the time that we got involved, they'd been operating for about a year, had a number of companies in the portfolio, 
and they were ready to raise more funds to deploy more capital. Um, so, yeah, I guess the things that had changed by the time that Punakaiki came to us is that people could see what was in the portfolio instead of just saying, hey, um, here are some people who are saying that they have this um, this favorable deal flow come their way. Now you can actually see that in the portfolio and you can see the, the uplift in, in valuation of that portfolio. So by the time it came along and the public had another go at it, um, yeah, the thing had moved and yeah, it was really pleasing to see the response it got. And you know we've watched in a few other markets around the world that have equity crowdfunding, um, funds have been popular. And I think for a lot of people that want to dip their toes in the water, they don't feel like they can evaluate and select early stage investments well. So here's a way to get um, instant diversification because you're buying into an existing portfolio and you're buying the expertise of someone who um, does this as a job. Um, so yeah, that was a really interesting one and they've since raised more capital. So we've um, facilitated a wholesale investor for them, offer for them as well because I'd already raised that $2 million limit. Um, and you know, Punakaki Fund will keep needing capital as they grow and deploy more of that into into growth companies so um, yeah hope, hopefully we can work with them again and um, and keep bringing more people into it that's great that's great alright well uh, thank you very much for uh, for joining us Josh um, that's really appreciated now if people want to uh, connect with you online what's the best way to get in touch uh, go to the Snowball Effect website and you'll see the team there including email addresses is probably the best way excellent excellent that's good stuff Thank you for me too. It's been really interesting. Great talking to you both. Thank you. The New Zealand Business Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, your strategic and proactive IT partner.